With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Are you, are you coming to the tree with a strong upper man, the same murder three? Strange things that have been here, no stranger would it if we met at midnight in the hanging tree Coffee. Without it, we would never have had the Industrial Revolution. We'd all be still living in Europe in mud huts. Here in Laredo, we have the Organic Man Coffee Trike. 4501 McPherson. The best coffee on the planet. If you can't get to Laredo, you can order from the Organic Man Coffee Trike dot shop. And welcome to the show. I'm your host, Chris James. David Subeth sent me a note the other day asking about the Roanoke Colony. He wanted to know if I could find any interesting details that weren't already out there and available. After Columbus ran into the Bahamas and claimed everything beyond for Spain, other countries began setting their sights on the New World. Kings began sending colonists across the Atlantic to set up little villages that just might turn into big towns and maybe cities. The recruitment policy was a bit skewed. Instead of sending people able to take care of themselves, they sent just about anybody willing to get on the boat. Most of these folks knew how to grow crops, only they knew how to do so in Europe. Weather and land conditions were a lot different on this side of the pond. If a town in Europe ran into trouble, it was the policy to send word to the neighboring village asking for help. If it wasn't enough, word could be sent to the nearest castle for some really violent helpers. A lot of the colonists knew very little about how to deal with wild animals or the wild locals. Some of the Indians living near the coast were willing to allow these weirdos from far away to set up their towns and put in crops to try to grow food. Some of the locals were unhappy with anybody trespassing on their land and they would kill or take prisoner anybody from outside their town or their tribe. Some of the kings running Europe decided it wasn't financially beneficial to fight all the other kings to try keeping all of the new world to themselves. A lot of these guys were related, so a few treaties were signed giving permission to colonize the places not already claimed by others. The Outer Banks were explored in 1524 by Giovanni de Veranzano, who mistook Pamlico Sound for the Pacific Ocean and concluded that the barrier islands were an isthmus. Recognizing this as a potential shortcut to Ming China, he presented his findings to King Francis I of France and Henry, uh, King Henry VIII of England, neither of whom pursued the matter. 
The lands of the New World were valuable in the long run, but finding a shortcut to China and India was an instant money-making proposition. In 1578, Queen Elizabeth I granted a charter to Sir Humphrey Gilbert to explore and colonize territories unclaimed by other Christian kingdoms. The terms of the charter were vague. No one knew what all might be found in the New World, what was there and what was where, and who was already in place. Gilbert understood the charter gave him rights to all territory in the New World north of Florida, which was claimed by Spain. Following Gilbert's death in 1583, the Queen divided the charter between his brother, Adrian Gilbert, and his half-brother, Walter Raleigh. Adrian's charter gave him Newfoundland and everything north. Raleigh was awarded everything south as far as Florida. Spain had claimed some of this area already, but there was no map showing what was claimed and what was still up for grabs. Raleigh's charter said he needed to establish a colony by 1591 or lose his right to colonization. The queen expected him to explore and set up towns along the coast with the intentions that some of these towns would be used by privateers to raid Spanish ships without getting England into an all-out war. The queen must not have trusted Raleigh because she forbade him to leave England. All of his power to explore and develop the new world were to be delegated to his underlings. In 1584, Raleigh sent two ships to explore the land he was supposed to control, and they were to return with a report. A John White may have been one of the members of this first expedition. The expedition employed a standard and bizarre means of crossing the ocean. They sailed south from England to catch the trade winds and sail to the West Indies, or the Caribbean Islands. This was a much longer voyage since a straight line would have taken them across the northern sea along the Canadian coast, traveling 3,800 miles. By sailing south from England, past the Mediterranean, then sailing to the Caribbean and then north, they not only ran the risk of pirates, but they added a few miles to the trip. They nearly doubled the distance to 7,300 miles. The ships had to pick up fresh water and supplies, and then they would sail north from the Caribbean along the coast looking for the land they were to explore. Once the sailors spotted Cape which is now part of North Carolina, they landed and began their mission of exploring and looking for places to build. From Cape Fear to Roanoke Island was about 200 miles. The Secaton Indians lived all along the coast. They'd already encountered these Englishmen and had decided they weren't all that bad. Varying tribes had been fighting each other for years. The Secatan had been at war with the Pemlico, and Chief Wingana had been injured, so his brother Granganimio met with the English and established relations with them. One location that was of interest to the English was an island to the east of Pamlico Sound. In, in areas explored by the British, the term sound was applied to an inlet that contained large islands. Once the two ships returned to England in 1584, the explorers spoke highly of the Secatan Indians and the large island found in Pamlico Sound. Uh, two of the Indians had sailed to England with the explorers. Juan Chis and a Secaton, and Monteo, a Croatian, a Croatan. Croatian is a different kind of person. A Croatan. Back then, a lot of the folks living in Europe thought the Indians were some of the lost tribes of Israel. 
Ten of the original twelve Hebrew tribes that took possession of the promised land vanished into the rest of the world. There are a few records telling where they wound up, but not very many. As Europeans began settling in the New World, they tried to establish connections to Jerusalem by naming towns Salem, which is short for Jerusalem. There are about 25 towns and cities using this name in the United States today. In a bid to get the people to sail to the New World and set up colonies, the area around Roanoke was described as being like the Garden of Eden. Roanoke is a word from the Powhatan language, Rawanok, which means things rubbed smooth by hand, to rub, smooth, or polish. 1585, during a ceremony to Knight Raleigh, the queen proclaimed the land granted to him, Virginia, and proclaimed Raleigh Knight Lord and Governor of Virginia. <clears throat> Sir, Walter Roddy, <laughs> Sir Walter Raleigh proceeded to seek investors in order to fund a colony. Now the queen told him to establish colonies, but she didn't give him the money to do it with. That he had to do on his own. The first colony in Virginia was a largely military operation focused on the exploration and evaluation of natural resources. 600 men sailed on seven ships. About half were to establish a colony while the rest would continue exploring. Ralph Lane was to be the governor of Virginia, while Sir Richard Greenville was the overall commander of the endeavor. Monteo and Winchies returned home on one of these ships. Before setting sail, Greenville had told the other captains, if they were separated, the ships would all meet up at Mosquetalan on the south coast of Puerto Rico. Good thing he did, because the fleet ran into a storm and the ships were scattered. While waiting for the missing ships, Greenville established a base camp where his crew could rest and defend themselves from Spanish forces. Lane's men used the opportunity to practice building the fortifications that would be needed at the new colony. Uh, finally, Greenville sailed for the area where they were to establish the first colony with only four ships. The others had encountered difficulties and all had to return to Europe. The Spanish in Florida were contacted and a sort of truce was established. The Spanish didn't want trouble from a heavily armed fleet of ships bound for the far north of the New World. They were more interested in exploring Mexico and South America, where all the gold was coming from. The fleet sailed through an inlet at Wokakone Island, which later became Ocracoke Inlet. Some of y'all will recognize the name. Ocracoke is the place Blackbeard was killed in 1718. The main ship of the fleet hit a shoal, and the majority of their supplies got ruined. Great plan. Put all of your really important stuff in one ship. Hmm. That's what you call not thinking ahead. Greenville's fleet was supposed to spend the winter with the new colony, but having most of their food destroyed, Greenville decided this was not a good idea. Only about 100 men would stay and set up a colony while the rest would return to England. Monteo arranged a meeting for Greenville and Lane with Granganamio to provide land for the English settlement on Roanoke Island. Both sides agreed the island was strategically located for access to the ocean and to avoid detection from Spanish patrols. Lane began construction of a fort on the north side of the island. The new colony was to be resupplied by a second fleet, 
that was supposed to arrive soon. The bay around the outer banks was too shallow to support larger ships, so some of the men would spend their time looking for a better location to build a harbor. They needed a deep enough bay so the privateers could hide from the Spanish after stealing their treasures. This put their plans to begin acting as privateers on hold as well. The second fleet got rerouted to Newfoundland to support the fishing fleet there because the Spanish had begun targeting these ships due to being attacked by privateers. With the loss of their supplies and the redirection of the second fleet, the colonists would be needing a lot of help from the Secatan Indians. Greenville set sail for England aboard the Tiger on August 25, 1585. Days later, in Bermuda, his ships encountered a large Spanish galleon, the Santa Maria de San Vicente, which had become separated from the rest of the fleet. Acting as privateers, they boarded the ship and seized it. The merchant ship was claimed as a prize and taken back to England. It had been loaded with enough treasure to make the entire Roanoke expedition profitable right from the get-go. A spurring excitement in Queen Elizabeth's court about Raleigh's colonization efforts. Many of the colonists had joined the mission expecting to discover sources of gold and silver. When no such treasures were located, the men decided the entire operation was a waste of their time. Hoping to at least find some valuable metals, the English looked into where the Indians were obtaining their copper, but ultimately they were never able to track down the mines that they were using. The colonists did manage to acquire enough food to survive the winter of 1585. None of the records were kept to help the next batch of colonists obtain food in the future. They had exhausted their English provisions, and the resulting monotony of their remaining food source no doubt contributed to their lack of morale really quick. If you can imagine eating the same thing every day for three months, well, that's what they were going through simply because they didn't know how to survive in the New World. The few colonists not stuck manning the small fort or farming spent their time exploring their part of the New World. They had heard about a big city in parts of Virginia. This led them to believe they would find vast complexes like the Spanish had found that were run by the Aztecs and the Incas. Cities filled with gold. Once they arrived at these big towns, they found just big towns. Lots of people living in one location. The explorers noted that some strange form of sickness was visiting all of these big cities and the population was being slowly killed off shortly after they left. The Secaton Indians began to suspect some form of bad spirit had been released or was following the Englishmen. When Chief Wingina fell sick, his own people could not treat him. His men took him to the English, who managed to not kill him. The English prayed over the stricken chief, and he managed to recover. This led to the English having far more contact with Indian villages, uh, spreading these diseases even faster and farther. By spring, relations between the Secatan and the colonists were quite strained. When Granganemio became sick and died, things got a whole lot worse. When Gina changed his name to Pemisapan, which means one who watches. He became very wary of the colonists. He even established a temporary capital on Roanoke near the English fort. The English didn't realize what was going on. 
The chief was there to keep an eye on them and decide if they were going to stay or if he was going to run them off or maybe just kill them. In March, Lane consulted Pemisapan about a plan to explore the mainland beyond Sekatan territory. Pemisapan said this was a good idea, but he advised Lane that the Chawanok leader, Menantonin, was meeting with his allies and they were planning an attack on the English. There were well over 3,000 warriors gra- gathering at Chowanok with bad intentions for the English. Pemisapan sent word to Menatonin telling him that the English would be coming. They were armed and they were looking for a fight. When Lane's well-armed party arrived at Chowanok, they found representatives of the Chowanok, Monagok, Wepamak, and Moratok. Those gathered were not really planning an attack. It was more of just a gathering to discuss what they thought should be done about the English, or whether they should just simply be ignored. <clears throat> Manitonin was questioned, and he told Lane it was Pemispan who had requested the council in the first place. Amenantonin managed to gain Lane's trust by offering information about lucrative opportunities and lands the English had not yet explored. It turns out that this was kind of a common dodge that a lot of the locals used whenever the conquistadors showed up. They'd come riding into a town, and the locals would say, yeah, we've got a little gold, but there's a city just over the horizon. It's filled with gold, and you should go look into that. So the conquistadors would go riding off to the horizon, which you know you can never reach the horizon. They'd go riding off to the horizon looking for these huge piles of gold that they were never able to find. I'm not saying the locals were lying, but they sure were stretching some stories. Amenantonin described a rich and powerful king to the northeast, warning that Lane should bring a considerable force if he sought to make contact. Amenantonin also corroborated rumors that Lane had heard about a sea just uh, beyond the head of the Roanoke River, apparently confirming English hopes of finding access to the Pacific Ocean. The chief's son, Skiko described a place to the west called Chinus Temotan, rich in the valuable metal, which Lane thought could be either copper or maybe even gold. Lane drew up a battle plan. He was going to divide his forces into two sections. One would travel north up the Chowan River, while the second half would follow the coast. They would meet and conquer the giant wealthy chief and all of his gold or silver or whatever he had. With supplies being tight, Lane decided that he'd best wait for a resupply fleet. Lane ransomed Manitonin and had Skiko sent back to Roanoke as a hostage. Once again, this was a common practice. Remember what happened to Vlad Tepish? when his dad sent him to Turkey as a sort of hostage. So, for Europeans, that's how things were done. After this, Lane proceeded with 40 men. They traveled about 100 miles up the Roanoke River in search of the Chunas Tamatown, but they found only deserted villages and warriors who were laying in ambush. Lane had expected the Moratok to provide provisions for him along his route, but Pemispan had sent word that the English were hostile and villagers should withdraw from the river along with all of their food. Lane and his party returned to the colony shortly after Easter, half-starved and empty-handed. Rumors had spread that they'd all been killed, and Pemispan 
had been preparing to withdraw the Seketan from the Roanoke Island, leaving the colonists to starve. Ensenor, an elder among Pemispan's council, argued in favor of the English. Later, an envoy from Menetonin informed Lane that the Wepamac leader, Okasco, had pledged fealty to Queen Elizabeth and Sir Walter Raleigh. This shift in the balance of power in the region further deterred Pemispan from following through with his plans against the colony. Instead, he ordered his people to sow crops and build fishing weirs for the settlers, instead of leaving them to starve like he had originally planned. The renewed accord between the English and the Secatan was very short-lived. On April 20th, Ensenor died depriving the colony of its last advocate in Pemispan's inner circle. Juan Chis had risen to become a senior advisor, and his time among the English had convinced him they were a threat. A Pemispan evacuated the Secatan from Roanoke, destroyed the fishing weir, and ordered them to not sell food to the English. Left to their own devices, the English had no way to produce enough food to sustain the colony. So, Lane ordered his men to break up into small groups to forage and beg for food in the Outer Banks and the mainland. Yeah, just go door to door or teepee to teepee and ask the locals for food, please. What a way to run a colony. Lane continued to keep Skiko as a hostage. Uh, Pemispan met regularly with Skiko and believed that he was sympathetic to the anti-English cause. However, Skiko wanted to honor his father's intention of maintaining relations with the colony. So, Skiko informed Lane that Pemispan had planned to organize a war council meeting on June 10th with various regional powers. Forced to accelerate his schedule by the possibility of English reinforcements, Pemispan gathered as many allies as he could for a meeting on May 31st at... Oh boy, that is a long name. I'm not even going to try it. Starts with a D. That evening, Lane attacked the warriors posted on Roanoke, hoping to prevent them from alerting the mainland. On June 1st, Lane and his top officers and 25 men went to that strange town that starts with a D under the pretense of discussing a Secatan attempt to free Skiko. Once they were Admitted into the council, Lane gave the signal for his men to attack. Pemispan was shot and he fled into the woods, but Lane's men caught up with him. They cut off his head and mounted it on a stick. The head was impaled outside the colony's fort. That's a very pleasant decoration. In June, the colonists made contact with the fleet of Sir Francis Drake, who was on his way back to England after a successful campaign in Santo Domingo. Drake had acquired refugees, slaves, and hardware with the intention of delivering them to Raleigh's colony. Upon learning of the colony's misfortunes, Drake agreed to leave behind four months of supplies and a ship. Well, a hurricane hit the Outer Banks and took the ship and pretty much drug it out to sea. I guess they forgot to tie the thing up or something. After the storm, Lane persuaded his men that it was time to evacuate the colony, and Drake agreed to take them all back to England. Monteo and his associate Tawai joined them. Three of Lane's colonists were left behind, never to be heard from again. The slaves and the refugees were also left behind and have vanished from history, kind of like the main characters of this whole story. Two weeks later, 
Greenville's relief fleet finally arrived with a year's worth of supplies and 400 men. The fleet turned around and went back to England, leaving behind a small detachment of 15 men. They needed to maintain an English presence and protect Raleigh's claim to Roanoke Island. As long as he could say, yeah, I've got a colony there, he was still in charge. According to the Croatan, the contingent was attacked by an alliance of mainland tribes shortly after Greenville's fleet left. Thirteen Englishmen survived by taking to the water, but were never seen again. More people disappearing from Roanoke. Raleigh was persuaded to make another attempt at Roanoke Island. He was, he was told that he should move it to the Chesapeake Bay because that would be a, a much better and safer location. Raleigh approved a corporate charter to fund the city of Raleigh with White as the governor and 12 assistants. 115 people agreed to join the colony, including White's pregnant daughter Eleanor, her husband Aninus Dare. The colonists were largely middle-class Londoners, perhaps seeking to become rich landowners. Monteo and Tawai were also brought along. Now this time, the party included women and children, but there was no organized military force. What could possibly go wrong? June 22nd, the ships anchored at Croatoan Island. White planned to take just 40 men onto Roanoke using a smaller ship. He planned to consult with the men stationed there by Greenville, not knowing they'd all been killed, before him and the colonists would all continue to the Chesapeake Bay. Once he had boarded the ship, one of the men in charge of the flagship, who represented Fernandez, ordered the sailors to leave all of the colonists on Roanoke. White's party did manage to locate Lane's colony. The fort had been dismantled, the houses stood vacant and overgrown. The colonists only found a few bones of some of Greenville's men. Mostly, they had simply vanished. White dispatched Stafford to reestablish relations with the Croatan, with the help of Monteo. The Croatan described how a coalition of mainland tribes led by Juan Chis had attacked Greenville's detachment. The colonists attempted to negotiate a truce through the Croatan, but received no response. Monteo again managed to smooth relations between the colonists and the Croatan. For his services, Monteo was baptized and renamed Lord of Roanoke. He got a title, but no money. August 18, 1587, Eleanor Dare gave birth to a daughter, christened Virginia, in honor of being the first Christian born in Virginia. By the time the fleet was preparing to return to England, the colonists had decided to relocate 50 miles up Albemarle Sound. The colonists persuaded Governor White to return to England to explain the colony's desperate situation and ask for help. White reluctantly agreed and departed with the fleet on August 27, 1587. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. After a difficult journey, White returned to England on November 5th, 1587. By this time, reports of the Spanish Armada mobilizing for an attack had reached London, and Queen Elizabeth had prohibited any able ships from leaving England so that they might participate in the coming battle. During the winter, Greenville was granted a waiver to lead a fleet into the Caribbean to attack the Spanish, and White was permitted to accompany him in a resupply ship. Then Greenville received new orders to stay and defend England. Two of the smaller ships in Greenville's fleet, the Brave and the Roe, were unsuitable for combat, and White was permitted to take them to Roanoke. The ships departed April 22nd, but the captains of the ships attempted to capture several Spanish ships on the voyage. By May 6th, they were attacked by French ships near Morocco. Nearly two dozen of the crew were killed and the supplies bound for Roanoke were looted, leaving the ships to return to England. Following the defeat of the Spanish Armada in August, England maintained the ban on ships shipping in order to focus efforts on organizing a counter-armada that was going to attack Spain in 1589. The Spanish Empire had been hearing all kinds of stories about the English at Roanoke. One story said they had built a huge fort there to be used by privateers to attack Spanish ships. In another story, the English had found a huge supply of diamonds as well as a passage to the Pacific Ocean. In 1587, King Philip II of Spain ordered Vicente Gonzalez to search Chesapeake Bay. Gonzalez failed to find anything in Chesapeake, but on the way back he chanced to discover Port Fernando along the Outer Banks. The port appeared abandoned and there was no sign of activity on Roanoke Island. Gonzalez left without conducting a thorough investigation. Eventually, Raleigh arranged passage for White on a privateering expedition organized by John Waits. <clears throat> the fleet of six ships would spend the summer of 1590 raiding Spanish outposts in the Caribbean. Two small vessels were allowed to sail north to Roanoke. At the same time, Raleigh was in the process of turning the colony over to new investors. The two ships anchored at Croatoan Island on August 12th, but White didn't contact the locals asking about what was happening to his colony. On the evening of August 15th, the crew sighted plumes of smoke on Roanoke Island. The following morning they investigated, but they found nothing. White's landing party spent the next two days attempting to cross Pamlico Sound with considerable difficulty and loss of life. August 17th, they sighted a fire on the north end of Roanoke and they rode towards it. But they reached the island after nightfall and they decided they didn't want to risk coming ashore. So the men spent the night hunkered down in their boats at anchor. White and the others made landfall on the morning of August 18th. The party found fresh tracks in the sand, but they never found anyone. They also discovered the letters C-R-O carved into a tree. Upon reaching the site of the colony, White noted the area had been fortified with a palisade. Near the entrance of the fencing, the word Croatoan was carved in one of the posts. White was certain these two inscriptions meant that the colonists had relocated to Croatoan Island. With the palisade, a kind of a high wooden fence, not quite a fort, the search party had found that the houses had been dismantled, 
anything that could be carried off was gone. None of the colony's boats could be found along the shore. The two ships were running a risk of being grounded in the shallows around the islands. The fall was already there and winter was coming. White did not want to head back to England, minus his daughter, son-in-law, and grandchild. He asked to be taken as far as the Caribbean to spend the winter there. Then he'd return to continue the search. A storm drove the ship off course, and he wound up limping back to England anyway. White thought that maybe the colonists had relocated to some other area but he wasn't too sure where. Raleigh wanted the entire case dropped. If people heard some colonists had vanished into thin air, it might hinder his further colonization of his newfound lands. He finally made the trip across the ocean to visit Virginia in 1595. Raleigh said this was to look for the missing colonists, but he was actually searching the area for gold. He never even bothered to search the area around the Outer Banks. In 1597, Ananias Dare was legally declared dead so that his son, John Dare, could inherit his estate. On a second search for the missing colonists, Raleigh sent his own ship to the area. Instead of looking for missing people, the ship's crew harvested sassafras to bring back to England for a healthy profit. The ship never got even close to Roanoke. In 1603, Raleigh was implicated in the main plot and arrested for treason against King James, effectively ending his Virginia charter. There was one final expedition in 1603 led by Bartholomew Gilbert with the intentions of finding the Roanoke colonists. Their intended destination was the Chesapeake Bay, but bad weather forced them to land in an unspecified location nearby. The landing team, including Gilbert himself, was killed by a group of Indians for unknown reasons. Gee, I wonder why they would want to kill the English. After the way they'd been treated, I could see why. The remaining crew were forced to return to England empty-handed. In 1607, John Smith was captured by the Powhatan and met with both their leaders, Chief Powhatan and his brother Opchinakanaho. <laughs> Trust me, I have looked these names up. I have practiced pronouncing them, but I just can't get them to come out right. They met with Chief Powhatan and his brother. They decided this Englishman was worth saving, so they told him about a village where the inhabitants dressed in European clothing, and they lived in houses similar to those found in England. Smith was allowed to return to his colony. Later, he heard from other Indians about another village with European-style clothes and buildings. Working with the locals, Smith drew a map showing the location of both villages. In the summer of 1608, Smith sent a letter about this information along with the map back to England. A copy was obtained by Pedro de Zuniga, the Spanish ambassador to England, who passed this on to King Philip III of Spain. Smith dispatched two search parties to look for the villages. Neither group could be found, and there was no sign of the Roanoke colonists or any folks dressed like Europeans. By May 1609, word had reached England's Royal Council for Virginia that the 1587 colonists had been massacred by the Huasenkawa. Uh, this was probably more rumor than fact. The council drafted orders for Jamestown Colony to relocate. These orders recommended Ohanahorn near the mouth of the Chowan River as a new base. The letter suggesting the move 
<clears throat> was delayed due to the ship carrying it running into another storm. It didn't arrive in Jamestown until right in the middle of what is known as the Starving Times. Uh, talk about hard times. Uh, some of these colonists reverted to cannibalism in order to survive. Of the 500 colonists, only 61 were still alive when the ship arrived. <clears throat> In 1612, William Strachey wrote The History of Travel into Virginia, an overview of the Virginia Territory. <clears throat> he described the slaughter at Roanoke, based on stories he'd heard from people who probably heard them from other people who had heard them from others. In other words, it was a whole lot of speculation. Strachey suggested that the lost colonists had spent 20 years living peacefully with a tribe beyond Powhatan territory. He claimed an unprovoked attack on the colonists was due to Indian priests, I guess this would be the medicine men, saying that the Europeans needed to go. Let's face it. A lot of what passed as truth was made up. According to the stories Strachey heard, seven colonists were supposed to have been spared. Four men, two boys, and one woman. These folks were taken prisoner and made to work copper for the tribe. Strachey believed that the Powhatan were satanic and that the priests might literally be communion with Satan. He advocated for England to facilitate the Powhatan's conversion to Christianity, one way or another. To that end, he recommended a plan in which King James would show mercy to the Powhatan people for the massacre of the Roanoke colonists, but demand a revenge upon the priests. This history of travel was not published until 1849. After the Powhatan attacked Jamestown in 1622, there was a dramatic shift in the English commentary on Native Americans, as writers increasingly questioned whether they were even human or not. The London Company sponsored propaganda arguing that the massacre had justified genocidal retaliation in order to assure potential backers that their investment in the colonies would be safe. Retaliations between the English and the Indians just kept dissolving as stories of massacres and unfounded attacks spread. Both sides got caught up in these lies. Sea traffic through Roanoke Island fell into decline in the 17th century owing to the dangerous waters of the Outer Banks. 1672, the inlet between Hatterosk and Croatoan Islands closed, and the resulting landmass became known as Hatteras Island. During John Lawson's 1701-1709 exploration of Northern Carolina, what had been part of Virginia, he visited Hatteras Island and encountered the Hatteras people. Many of these folks said they had ancestors who had come from far away, and they dressed like Europeans. The story went that these people had joined the Indian tribe after losing contact with their places of origin. While visiting Roanoke Island itself, Lawson reported finding the remains of a fort as well as English coins, firearms, and powder horns. This was the last search for the missing colonists until the 1800s. November 8, 1937. Lewis E. Hammond visited Emory University with a 21-pound stone. He wanted some help deciphering what was written on it. He said he was on vacation along with his wife, and they found the stone by the east bank of the Chowan River in Chowan County, North Carolina. On one side, the stone read. Well, where did that come from? <laughs> <laughs>
On one side, the stone read, Aninus Dare and Virginia went to heaven, 1591. Any Englishman show this rock to John White, governor of Virginia. On the other side of the stone, it said, Father, soon after you go for England, we come here. Only misery and war for two years. Above half dead these two years, more from sickness, being twenty-four. A savage with a message of a ship came to us. Within a small space of time, they became frightened of revenge and ran away. We believe it was not you. Soon after, the savages said spirits were angry. Suddenly, they murdered all save seven. My child and Ananus, too, were slain with much misery, uh, buried all near four miles east of this river, upon a small hill. Names were written all there on a rock. Put this there also. If a savage shows this to you, we promised you would give them great plenty presents. Well, Eleanor Dare was not the best linguist on the planet. I thought I had trouble with grammar. Well, this was carved on a rock using whatever tool she might have had. Plus, I doubt the Indians gave her much time to make it look all nice and pretty. Most folks back then could barely read or write, so, well, that was the best she could do. A group of Emory professors, including Howard Pierce, Jr., uh, traveled with Hammond to the site where he said he had found the stone. They couldn't determine the precise location of the find, but the trip convinced the professors that Hammond was a reliable source. Emory announced the find November 14, 1937. Hammond's stone told of a second stone used as Virginia Dare's tombstone. Uh, Pierce felt that locating the second stone would solidify the legitimacy of the first. Emory University declined to purchase the Chowan River stone from Hammond in 1938, so Pierce made his own offer. Uh, Pierce, his father, and his stepmother, Lucille, all made several trips to Edenton, North Carolina, to conduct surveys and excavations in 1938 and 1939. To raise awareness in the local community, they spoke before community organizations, and they offered a reward of $500, which was the equivalent of $9,000 in today's coin, to anybody that could produce the second stone. In May 1939, Bill Eberhardt delivered a few stones he claimed to have found at the hill near Greenville County, South Carolina. His finds were dismissed because they didn't look anything like the Dare Stone. Pierce showed Eberhardt Hammond's stone, saying this was what they wanted to find. So, soon Eberhardt produced a stone that looked very much like the Dare Stone. August 1939, Eberhardt returned with nine more stones. That's a lot of money for rocks. Eberhardt delivered three new stones August 1940. <clears throat> he offered to take Pierce's to where he had discovered them. The site was in Fulton County, Georgia, four miles from Eberhardt's home. Eberhardt handed over four additional stones. He had been told to leave the stones where he found them so the archaeologists could do a proper survey of the site, but Eberhardt didn't listen. In all, Pierce managed to accumulate 48 stones with the carved letters on them. These were all cataloged as being Dare stones carved by Eleanor Dare sometime in the late 15 and early 1600s. 
December 1940, Pierce submitted an article about the Dare Stones to the Saturday Evening Post. The Post editors accepted the manuscript. Then they assigned veteran reporter Boyden Sparks to investigate Spears' story. The April 26, 1941 edition of the Post ran an article by Sparks challenging the authenticity of the Dare Stones. Sparks revealed that nobody had been able to locate or learn anything about Lewis E. Hammond since he had left Emory. No one had ever met his wife, he'd said, was traveling with him in 1937. Hammond had said he had cleaned the dare stone, the first one, using a wire brush. This eliminated evidence that could have determined when and where the stone was carved. Uh, Sparks established that Bill Eberhardt, Isaac Turner, and William Bruce had known one another for years, and Turner had been a childhood friend of Tom Jett. He noted the suspicious coincidence that Eberhardt had found most of the Dare Stones, always alone or with his associate Turner, and along a path leading towards his own home. Although Sparks believed the stones were fake, he did not implicate Pierce in the forgery. As Sparks did accuse Pierce of promoting evidence favorable to the stone legitimacy while understating evidence that they might have been fakes. Following the Post article, Eberhardt attempted to sell Pierce another stone. By this time, Pierce had grown suspicious and he refused to hand over any more money. Eberhardt did manage to lead Pierce to an inscription on a bluff near the cave where Stone 47 was supposed to have been found. Pierce returned to the site later with a Georgia Tech geologist, Count Gib Gibson. The two men found a bottle of sulfuric acid that they guessed had been used to artificially age the writing. Pierce told Eberhardt he would no longer have any dealings with him. Eberhardt later arranged to meet with Pierce's mother, Lucille, saying he had another stone that she should look at. Lucille looked at this latest stone, and on it was written, Peace and dare historical hoaxes. We dare anything. Eberhardt demanded $200 from her, or he would submit the stone to the Saturday Evening Post and confess to forging all of the dare stones. Uh, during a tense confrontation on May 13, 1941, Eberhardt showed up holding a rifle. Uh, Pierce tried to get a signed confession as to Eberhardt's guilt and an excuse as to why Pierce had been fooled but Eberhardt refused to comply. The F Pierce family took their side of the story to the papers, conceding that most of the Dare Stones were hoaxes, but not all of them. Eberhardt denied that he attempted extortion, although he did claim to have found the, Dare, the We Dare Anything Stone no differently than all of the others. Media coverage of the story generally dismissed all of the Dare Stones as being hoaxes, without specifying which of them had been linked to Eberhardt, even though he sold all of the stones, except the first one. <coughs> Stonemasons Jim and Bill Vieira of Ashfield, Massachusetts, know stones. They've been working with stones and rocks for a long time. Jim got interested in giants when he had investigated old stone structures that he had found all over the country. A TV series called The Search for Lost Giants came out in 2014. Good show. I liked it. Yeah, I even read the book, a Giants on Records, written by Jim Vieira. Uh, Jim has said the general scientific community, along with museums, specifically the Smithsonian, have worked to keep the existence of giants in ancient America out of the history books. 
The brothers were on Roanoke's search for the lost colony in 2015, as well as Roanoke's search for the seven from 2016. Uh, during the show, uh, the Darestones came up. The investigation came to the conclusion that 47 of these stones had been carved by somebody using modern equipment. The first stone didn't contain any suspiciously modern words like the others. Eleanor Dare was moderately educated and her husband was a stonemason. It's reasonable to think she may have learned a few skills from him. Once in the custody of the Indians, she was put to work digging for copper. The metal was prized by many tribes and used for jewelry and barter. The Indians might have given her a chisel taken from the colony to make getting at the copper easier. While not cracking open stones, Eleanor might have sat down with a nice flat stone and written out her story. The letters carved into the other 47 stones were even depth, and the sides were smooth, leading the Vieiras to believe that Eberhardt had used a drill press to carve the stones so he could get easy money from Pierce. To see if this was credible, Jim used a drill to carve out his own stone, and the letters looked exactly like what was seen on the fakes. The first stone showed signs of being carved using a chisel. The wording was hard on the eyes. Whoever wrote out the text didn't know a whole lot about spelling and word use. Eleanor Dare was able to read and write, but only at a very basic level. The diction and the words used were all spelled out as if by someone guessing how to spell them. Add to this, the person doing the carving would have been tired, maybe sick, and fearing what might be her future. The first stone looked to be genuine. It wasn't only the rock or the carvings, it was the letterings that got people to pay attention. Some letters were visible showing marks that were only used in the 1500s. Uh, kind of like how the Enya makes an N into another letter. There were small marks on the dare stone only used way back then, and few folks living in the 1930s would have been aware of them. A linguistics professor, Dr. Kevin Quirmby, uh, saw these marks and was convinced the stone was legitimate. There are those who say the Dare Stones were all nothing but hoaxes. Folks like to get their opinion out there so that others can see them. It's kind of horrible to read some of the papers being written that while giving one side of the argument, the writers feel duty-bound to bile derision and throw out insults and slurs against those they disagree with. You never make yourself look good by trying to make others look bad. We do know that over 100 colonists were on Roanoke Island in the 1590s. Where they all went is still a mystery today. They only found a very few bones at the site. There were also the men who sailed away from Roanoke in 1586, never to be seen again, as well as the men who stayed behind when Sir Francis Drake evacuated the first colony. These men also have disappeared. Eleanor Dare said the colonists were all killed by disease or angry Indians. If so, what happened to all the bodies? She also said her husband and daughter had been buried four miles from where the rock was found. If you think the colonists had been attacked while still on the island, it wouldn't add up. What if the colonists had fled from the island? They may have moved west to the Chowan River using the boats that were missing from Roanoke. The 1608 Smith map had an odd-looking scrap that looked like it was added after the map had been drawn. By examining it on a light table, 
an image was seen that showed the symbol for a fort situated on the west bank of the Chowan River. The scrap may have been added to keep the Spanish from knowing or thinking a fort was located near the river. This fort would have been near where the dare stone was found. Maybe the colonists had fled 50 miles west, hoping to find safety at another location. Someone in the group may have known or suspected there were soldiers or other colonists somewhere along the Chowan River. The village on Roanoke had been partially dismantled. The colonists may have taken bits and pieces and floated them along with the boats to their new location. Why cut down a bunch of trees to build a house when you can just take a house along with you? After all, they float. Once there, they set up a basic area to live, probably with a lot of help from the locals. Then, the nasty diseases Europeans carried around with them hit the Indians who fell ill and began to die. One or two of them may have said, It's all those people's fault. Let's kill them. Let's face it, everywhere the English had gone, weird deaths had followed. The colonists may have all succumbed to starvation, disease, as well as a few well-placed arrows. <clears throat> The fort had never been built. It may have been placed on the map as a suggestion of where to build. There's no evidence of a fort ever being built in that location. As for the seven people taken prisoner by the Secatan, perhaps they lived to a ripe old age working as copper miners for the Indians. The videos all showed Dare as looking like she was drugged down a gravel road. The 18th century Quaker captive, Elizabeth Hance, maintained that the Native Americans were very civil towards their captive women, not offering any incivilities. Most of the stories of nasty things happening to captives was a product of those wishing to wipe out the locals. The only way we'll ever know for sure is if someone comes forward with evidence that the seven colonists either died from being overworked or maybe they became members of the captive tribe. <coughs> Sorry about that. They became members of the captive tribe. Not that unknown. I hope you enjoyed tonight's show. If you did, let your friends know what they've been missing. If you have a subject you'd like to hear on the show, or you've got a story you'd like to see in my next book, you can contact me at strangethings at arcanasa.com. Until next Saturday, this is Chris James. Are you, are you coming to the tree With a strong <coughs> upper man, the same murder three Strange things did happen here, no stranger would it be If we met at midnight in the hanging tree